0: To be inspired is to be in spirit. And John brought that spirit back to me.
1: Welcome, friends, to the third season of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community. This season, we're taking a longer view of grief. Can we find healing? Can we find peace? Today's program is crying in the shower and learning to laugh again. But before we get into the program, I just want to take a minute to thank some of our listeners and friends who've taken the time to send comments about our past programs. Special thanks to Bren Vignaroli, Bill Whedon, and some close friends and family, Valerie Russell, my sisters who listen religiously, Philip Proctor and Rachel Greenbaum. Some have given their time, some have given their money, some have just been wonderful people for us and really good friends of the program. Thank you all. We love you. Here with us today is our guest, R. Glenn Kelly, author of Sometimes I Cry in the Shower. Ron is no stranger to grief, and today he'll tell us his personal story and how he is committed to helping others deal with grief in their personal lives and in the workplace. Ron Glenn Kelly unexpectedly lost his teenage son and only child to a congenital heart defect. He has become a leading authority on grief in the workplace. He's the author of several books and is a keynote speaker discussing grief support in the workplace and how people can move forward after tremendous loss and grief. Thank you for coming to Heart
0: to Heart with Michael, Ron. It's always a pleasure to see you. Oh, it's my honor to be here. I truly appreciate the opportunity just to be here with you. Let's start with you telling us about your son. Oh, what an honor. I'd love to tell you about Jonathan. I, I was blessed with Jonathan coming into my life in the year of 1997. January 31st of 1997 was an amazing day. He would be my only child. He would come into this world as what appeared to be a healthy and and happy child. But Within two or three hours of his birth, uh, unfortunately, we were informed by uh, the attending physicians that John had come into the world with an undiagnosed condition known as hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And while I'm sure you know what that is, uh, for those that don't, uh, the left side of his heart, the two chambers, had failed to develop in the womb. And the long and short of it that day, we were handed Jonathan and told that he may not make it to his first night. But he did. uh, Between divine intervention and the intervention of a, a very, very good uh, pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, John made it. He underwent a series of, of very excruciating open heart surgeries before the age of two. And then there was intervention after that. And for all intents and purposes, with additional intervention that we knew of, he was supposed to have what would relatively be a, a prognosis for a full life. So we weren't expecting him to pass. We just knew that there would be problems along the way. He was an amazing child all the time that uh, he was growing up. He had a house full of friends, a yard full of friends. I couldn't keep food in the refrigerator. He was a Pied Piper, the neighborhood. And for some reason, and I think many heart uh, parents will tell you that for some reason, their heart is the size of the Empire State Building. He attracted friends like uh, like it's nobody's business. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, at the age of 16, I took him in for, now I'll give you the air quotes, the relatively routine heart catheterization where they were just going to to kind of take a look around his heart and see what was going on. And the procedure went well. But once he was out in the recovery room, about two hours, two hours after being out there, his, his heart crashed. It failed. Oh. And they were not able to recover him. And I take the, the the blessings, actually, the very, very strong blessings that I was actually there to hold my child when he took his final breath before he went to the other side. Well, um, I'm so sorry that you that. I wouldn't change that. that for the world. Oh, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss, but it, uh, it is something that humbled me when he was born. Uh, I wish I could have taken the humility that also came to me when he passed. But he taught me many lessons while he was alive and an even deeper lesson after he was gone. But an amazing, amazing child. Helped so many kids that he never even knew who would be born later on with the same condition he, he was born with. So he, he definitely left a legacy behind. How did he help other kids? Just uh, the research that's done when you have a rare heart condition like that. The research mm-hmm. that's done on him is is hopefully going to allow other children with similar conditions that are born later on. To, if I had him for sixteen years, maybe the next parent will have theirs for seventeen years, and then eighteen years, and we go on and on and on for mm-hmm. longer, longer lives until we can finally defeat what's uh, known as a rare, but certainly especially for me, not rare enough heart disease. Makes sense. Well,
1: No, it makes perfect sense, and I love the way you speak of him so highly. I know all of us who've lost children, we think of our our children as so special and so wonderful. And they really did, in their way, shine on everybody who knew them, other kids, other adults. They really did. Mm
0: -hmm. He is very much as much a part of me as I am of me, I'll tell you that. I can absolutely, completely understand that and empathize
1: with that. We said in the introduction that you wrote a book called Sometimes I Cry in the Shower. How did you come to write that, and what, what has that been for you?
0: Well, you know, as the typical male, and I will say that because one of the platforms I speak about is the diversities in between male and female and the processing and expression of grief emotions. But typical male, after John was gone, I was I was lost for quite some time. I went through an identity crisis where I didn't know who I was because I was no longer a father in my mind. I know different now, but at the time I thought I was no longer a parent or a father Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know who I was. I certainly was more wrapped around being a father than I was wrapped around being an executive at work. When John was born in 1997, I took an offer with private business in the defense contracting industry, and I was able to give John the home care that he needed while he went through his initial open heart surgeries. And I yes. I, I don't like private business. I would have rather been in public service, but I excelled at private business. It just wasn't my, and I'm giving you more air quotes, wasn't my identity, if you will. So when John was gone, I lost my identity. I fumbled around. I went back to work. Uh, I went back to work quickly because at work I was in charge and I could control things at work and I couldn't control the loss of John. So I had to find an outlet for that. I knew where I could control things and that was at the office.
1: That's Um, very interesting because I think I think a lot of us feel that that sense of falling mm -hmm. and out of control. And What do I do next? I mean, I didn't feel that my life had ended, but I felt that my life was about to change seriously, and I
0: didn't know what was behind any of the doors. But you had no control. Exactly. But right. but
1: being able to be in a position of control, I can see why that would be very important to you.
0: And even on the weekends, I would spend more, more time in my woodworking shop than I would inside the house because, uh, well, let me put it this way. If I would have kept going, every piece of furniture inside of my house would have been something that I had made in my woodworking shop. Because just as well. I could create and I could control what I was doing out there. It was all under my control, but it also allowed me to to avoid, which was a bigger thing. This went on for about a six month period where I was just constantly just repressing my grief and doing things to do, walking down the hallway and avoiding looking at pictures of of John on the wall, avoiding looking at his open bedroom door, um, not knowing that I was still a father. And whether it was just a strange mix of chemicals in my brain one day or whether John truly came to me, I was in the shower one morning and I felt John inside of me and I felt John on the outside of me. And all I could do was look at him where I thought that he might be and just say, hi, baby. And he he answered back, but not in very kind words. His (laughs) words to me, his very first words were, how dare you? He said, how dare you not grieve me? And how dare you not think that you're still my father? And from that point forward, I cried for the first time. And that was really the inception of why I wrote the book six months later. Sometimes I cry in the shower. I never had another experience with John after that in the same manner. Although I have dreams of John. I talk to John all the time. I think he answers me. You'll forgive me for that. But I speak with him. And and I think one of these days are... Our maker's going to come down and ask me why I don't speak with him as much as I speak with John anymore. But uh, yeah, I know I'm still speaking through him. And I want you to know the book, Sometimes I Cry in the Shower, is so much more than just about the loss of John. It's about my rediscoveries of, of my self-worth and my self-esteem and about living with an unhealthy ego and, and realizing that I needed to live an inspired life. Because to be inspired is to be in spirit. And John brought that spirit back to me. And I realized that once I was inspired again, I became motivated. I became creative. And in John's terms, I went out to live his legacy again. And without inspiration, I couldn't do that. Without him visiting me that day and leaving so much of a mark on me, there's no way I could be out doing what I'm doing today.
1: You know, one of the things we've talked about a lot this season is exactly that moment, what we call post-traumatic growth, Mm -hmm. where you have been grieving, or in your case, avoiding grief perhaps, but... It all builds up to a point where it explodes in a powerful way. Yes. We end up doing things that we never pictured ourselves doing. Forget If it's difficult, things that we just never thought we would do. Right. And, and there you are. are. Well, and
0: and I call it that, that ability to go stand naked in the storm now, you know, and I know that's a visual. Some people don't want to have, but (laughs) you know, one of the common things that we hear, two of the common things that, that we've gone through the fire. You hear that a lot, right? Or, The the bottom is dropped out of my life. And I like to tell people when the bottom is dropped out of your life, where did you go? Where do you think you went when the bottom dropped out? You, You dropped into your true self is what you did. Or if you've been through the fire, I say, well, you have to picture it like the all consuming fire that does nothing but take away all that which is untrue and leaves your true self behind. And at that point, you're able to transition yourself into something that you were more than before. Because now you do, you you do have that ability to to do away with the unhealthy ego, to live with the the unconditional love that we now have. Because there's one thing that that we recognize when we lose someone we love so deeply, we recognize that we felt unconditional love.
2: Home tonight forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective.
0: Hi, my name is Jamie Alcroft, and I just published my new book, The Tin Man Diaries. It's an amazing story of my sudden change of heart as I went through a heart and liver transplant. I can think of no better way to read The Tin Man Diaries than to cuddle up in your favorite Hearts Unite the Globe sweatshirt and your favorite hot beverage, of course, in your Hearts Unite the Globe mug, both of which are available at the Hug Podcast Network online store. Or visit heartsunitetheglobe.org.
2: You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program.
1: Well, let's talk about men in the workplace. You seem to do a lot of work with grieving men. Why is that important?
0: Because of, of both nature and nurture, I think I'd, I'd like to be able to let people know that men to uh, seem to repress their grief a little more than women do. And where that comes into problems is when we go back to work, as I'd mentioned in our other segment, you know, for me, I went back early to to control things that I could control. But all in all, that becomes really just another form of complicated grief. I was delaying my grief. uh, And the longer that I delay it, eventually it's going to come out. You can't stop those emotions from coming out. The longer I delay it, they're going to come out. And where and when they come out is not going to be up to me the longer that I delay them. Will that be in the workplace? Will that be why I'm sitting on a forklift someplace? Men happen to have a a few things about us where, yes, we do have as many emotions inside as women do. We're just more internal with those emotions. We tend to go to work and we tend to put on what I call a a grief mask. We show people Mm -hmm. that we're okay Mm -hmm. when inside we're not Uh, become because women are a little bit more social than we are. They tend to go in into work and and let people know that they are hurting inside and people can make adjustments around them. But for us men, we go in and we're acting just fine when inside we're not. Troubles Mm -hmm. can arise from that.
1: How does that affect the workplace, though? Because I know you do a lot of work with corporations on how to treat grieving men in the workplace. Obviously, there's an economic factor
0: here. Oh, there is a huge economic factor. Right now, the studies will show you that there's over $100 billion in annual revenue loss due to the the hidden direct and indirect costs of grief in the workplace in the United States. That's an astronomical figure. How does that happen? One of the the biggest losses for business, whether it's here, whether it's there, is always going to be unscheduled absenteeism. Now, unscheduled absenteeism in the United States costs American businesses over $420 billion a year just in itself. But now the average bereaved employee is going to take an additional 30 days of unscheduled absence from the workplace just because of his bereavement or her bereavement. Now, why do they take that additional absence? Because they don't feel safe and comfortable in the workplace. It Mm -hmm. used to be a comfortable home, but if it's indifferent or even hostile to their grief, and you know as well as I do, when the mind is in trouble, the mind is going to seek a place of safety and comfort to process Mm -hmm. its trauma. Is it not? Sure. So, You wake up one morning and you're in a massive wave of grief, Um, you're going to want someplace safe where you can process that grief until you can get rid of that wave and wait for the next one to come. And if the workplace is not that safe place, you're liable to, to, to shelter in place that day right there in bed and not go to work. That's just one example of the, the direct costs of grief to the workplace. There's another study, and I'll be quick about this, another study where 25,000 bereaved active employees were interviewed. 85% of those who identified as managers said that after their loss for up to six months, they had major errors in judgment on the job. of frontline workers who became injured, and these are all cited statistics, 90% of workers who became injured on the job after a loss reported that that injury was directly related to their grief. Now you're talking about workers' comp rates. Now you're talking about general and liability insurance. You're talking about a number of factors there. Now you want to talk about a workplace that's hostile towards grievers, and you're talking about increased hiring costs and training costs and uh, lack of production. You follow me? I mean, there are. Yeah, but
1: when you say hostile, you mean like, you know, people saying something like, aren't you over this already? That kind of thing? or
0: Sure. Well, you've got indifference and you've got those that just don't want to handle it. And you've got hostility because I was a businessman. I understand that businesses are in the business of doing business. A for-profit yeah. business wants to make a profit. And profit generally means boots on the ground doing the job that they were hired to do. So, I mean, there are some places that are still back in the stone age where you're supposed to leave your personal life at home and not bring it to work with you. Personally, as far as I'm concerned, I expect you to be the same at work as you are at home. Uh, right. I don't want you coming to work pretending to be somebody that you're not. Uh, I know and you know that I've had bad days and I've carried those to work with me, right? They, they sure, go to we work. all do. We all do. Um, and businesses, many of them, they've there's been phenomenal increases in morale and welfare programs in the United States all across the board except for in the area of bereavement. Is that because bereavement is still considered so personal? It's uncomfortable. Mortality is uncomfortable. We don't wanna talk about it in the boardroom. We don't wanna talk about it in in planning situations. Um, We want to outsource it. Here we've got employee assistance programs that the majority of your major corporations will sign up with, and they think that they're doing all that they can, but they don't realize that statistics show that only three to 7% of eligible employees will ever participate in an employee assistance program. And, And even if they do, Michael, 90,000 hours is the amount of time the average U.S. employee will spend in a lifetime at work. 90,000 hours. That's a lot of time. They will spend more time with coworkers on the job than they will with loved ones at home. This is true. Where is the biggest influence coming from? Because I tell you, if I've got an appointment to see my counselor tomorrow at 3, it's 9 o'clock in the morning and I'm on my forklift and I'm having a major grief wave right now. Right. Right. And I'm around people that I'm around more than anybody else in my life, and they're treating me indifferent or they're treating me hostile. So, yeah, there's there's a big impact.
1: I have a lot of trouble with that, that that people would be hostile at the work. Our definition of hostile might not match. I mean, I understand that there are people who say the most horrendous things, and I hope we get to that later on in the program. People say the most horrendous things, but they usually say it in an attempt – to show some sort of sympathy or even without, you know, without everything. malice.
0: They don't say it out of malice. Yeah. I'm completely hundred percent agreement with you, but there are those places where get back to work. We need you to go to work, go to work. Aren't you over it? Oh, this? really? Really? Yeah. yeah it's, it still exists. I would say that to be honest with you and not to go down that road more than anything else, probably 90% of the issue is more indifference versus hostility. Yeah. Does it sound better?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's probably just more to say most people who might be otherwise hostile, just don't say anything. Or they, they, and which is sometimes a good thing, but they, they also avoid looking at you, which could be understood as hostile.
0: Sure. And that flips in yeah. the other direction where you do have places that not only are they indifferent to it, but they actually avoid it altogether. And you watch as you're walking down a hallway and Michael jumps into a supply closet to avoid from, coming uh, face to face with me.
1: How do you find that in the workplace that breaks down? Is it
0: is this different between men and women or is this a general, generally sure. the same for everybody? Grief is an eternal process where mourning is your external process of it. Women have a tendency to be more social and allow that mourning part of it to be seen by, by those around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, men are more internal. We, we externalize everything. We want to keep it inside of ourselves, and that's fine. We're okay doing that. Grief only becomes external when it becomes overwhelming inside. So you've got a woman who will go in and she will let you probably know, probably, not every time, but let you know that she's hurting. And again, we touched on this earlier. The bigger thing for the man is he's not going to let you know that he's hurting inside. Uh What we have to to get to is we have to get to the man and let him know it's okay to process it inside. It's okay to be hurting. And it's okay to let other people know, hey, I'm dealing with something right now. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it does. But see, what's interesting to me is that it seems like this should be... Clearly understood by everybody, and apparently it's not.
0: I worked with a number of managers for nine years or for five years that reported to me. There were nine of them. And every morning before I had my loss for five years, they would come into my office on a casual basis and just say good morning. But we had a chance to talk about the day. And this went on for years. And soon they became impromptu business meetings that I relied on to know what my managers were doing for that day. And then I lost John. And guess what happened the first day I came back to work after uh, bereavement leave? Nobody came to my door anymore.
2: I was five hours old when I had my first surgery. Wow.
0: The only advice I can really give someone like that is to be
1: there
2: for your family. This is life, and you have two choices. You either live it, or you sit in a corner and cry. I am Anna Jaworski, and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. Join us on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time on Spreaker, our Blah Talk radio. We'll cover topics of importance for the congenital heart defect community. Remember, my friends, You are not alone.
1: If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org, and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the HUG Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more.
2: You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael.
1: Ron, we've been up to this point extraordinarily serious in our interview, and that's always a good thing. But I know that when you work, you use a lot of humor when you speak in front of groups.
0: So how do you make humor work when you're talking about grief? A lot of times in the workshops, I'll, I'll remove it to the second person. So I, I, I don't make anybody think I'm talking directly about them. But the good thing about talking about the diversities in men and women is I can be second person there. And then I can start talking about those differences and how they're actually comical. Grief is such a, a taxing thing on both our, our mentality and our, our physicality. Mm-hmm. It, it, once we can get laughter going, we can get dopamine back in the system and endorphins. It, it's it got such a healing property to it, both mentally and physically. We've got to let ourselves laugh because I know you can tell me, because I can tell you exactly <laughs> where I was the first time I laughed after I lost John and how guilty I felt for laughing, Right. You know what? I didn't feel guilty,
1: and I'll tell you why. We've talked about Jewish grief on this program quite a bit. And uh, for those who don't know, immediately after a funeral, we get seven days where we stay home, and people come to see us, and the it feels as if the whole world comes through. Sure. By the third or fourth day, cabin fever sets in. It really it becomes a laugh riot at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's part of the I, I can't tell you exactly when I left, but I know that by the third or fourth day,
0: I must have right. been in stitches, because I was going crazy. Oh, Yeah. And that, that's part of, as a police officer, we used to call it pretty much gallows humor is what we used oh, to call absolutely. it, but you've got to absolutely. have some of that. But for a lot of people, including myself at the time, we, we go through that period right off the start where we forget to feel bad for us because we're, we're not allowed to. We have to feel bad for the fact that that person mm. that we loved is no longer with us. We forget that we've also lost a lot. But it's important to laugh. It's important to give people that outage, like you said, during that second or third day where you're sitting around, it's time to start laughing again. But for the therapeutic properties, it's amazing. And also for the properties of teaching people and walking people through different concepts of, of what I call yep. grief work. You need to have them listening. And nobody knows better than, than most of us that humor is a wonderful way to do that. And the best medium is the difference in between men and women when it comes to grieving, and people right. laugh and say, well, how can you use that as a medium? Well, let's talk about some of the things that men do. Let's let's talk about George Carlin's. But what he said was, <laughs> women are crazy and men are stupid. And the reason why women are crazy is because men are stupid, right? That's what it comes down to. We drive women crazy because we are stupid. Men do some of the stupidest things, but then so do women. So when we get into these workshops and we bring up humor, all we have to do is point out the differences in the men and women. And we can stand back at that point, Michael, and say, okay, now that you're aware of some of his stupidity, now that you're aware of some of her propensities to do this and do that, don't you feel better about watching them as they go through their grief? Because you can understand why they're you don't you don't have to know exactly why they're doing it, but understand they're going to do it because that's who we're pre-wired to be. Yeah, for sure. And there, there's nothing better than going back to the Fred Flintstone days and the days in the Serengeti and just bringing out some <laughs> of the things that made us just as goofy as we are today. But it really gives them a chance to look at each other and go, I get it now. I understand why you, I understand why you want to go to a cave. I understand why you need your cave. And I'm going to say, hey, I understand why you just want to lean on my shoulder and cry all the time. Sure, sure. And we do that by basically letting them laugh at themselves without laughing directly at their grief. That's right. Mean. And it, did, it worked out wonderfully.
1: Let's talk for a second about things that you and I have both heard. Mm-hmm. And you know, at that moment, you know, when we're sort of on display and we're grieving, we smile, we nod, we chuckle, mm-hmm. but we really feel like, you know, if I could do that Batman reach and pull your lungs out through your through your mouth, you know, I would do yeah. it.
0: Yeah, uh, I call it so, throw punch. I just want to throw punch, but I can't because I'm a polite uh, so, guy. So I'll hit you with one or two. Okay, mm-hmm. Go you ahead. ready? Go ahead. Okay.
1: Well, look at you. Look at the bright side. At
0: least now you won't have that college tuition that was looming over your head. Yeah, because I would much rather have a Maserati right now than I would have my son back. But you know what? Absolutely. I'm not going to spend much time shopping for that now. I've got to go worry about putting him in the ground. But thanks for sharing that, Sparky. God only takes the ones early that he really wants close. No, oh, that means I must be a really, really just a bad guy. But I tell you what, if I go down and I put in enough work with a local charity, you think God will come and take me early too?
1: <laughs> i thought you're going with the other
0: answer <laughs> which one which i one? hope god really likes you too yeah oh yeah i'm sorry i just i try not to stretch it too far yeah, okay yeah i hope god really likes you because then i don't have to worry about you for much longer you can go now
1: let's get serious again for a minute tell me yeah. more about your website your books and your availability as a speaker because i think people are going to want to hear
0: more from you Oh, fantastic. I really appreciate that. My website is simply rglennkelly.com, two N's in Glenn, uh, only one E in Kelly. We were too lazy for the second one. And on my website, you'll find that I do uh, basically three different platforms that I enjoy doing the most. I mean, my initial platform, the one I love doing is what I called when Jack and Jill collide in grief. And that really is some of the more wow. um, special things for me because we get together, especially with parents who've lost a child. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that comes out is they're, they've been told that they'll, you know, got to be careful. You'll end up with a divorce because you've lost a child. And that's just a complete fallacy. And we, we walk through where that came from, but then we walk through the differences in men and women and make them aware and give them understanding of what each of them is going to, and, and look at what they've gone through and, and understand why not only does it help them get along with each other, but it helps them get along with themselves. Um, sure. For me, I didn't understand. I I went through that period where I wasn't crying, but my wife was crying. So wasn't there something wrong with me? There must be. I must not have loved my son as much because I'm not crying like she is. Well, I was pre-wired to be that way. The other one is grief in the workplace, where as we've talked about some of these issues with grief in the workplace and the money, uh, and I'm quite sorry to, to the listeners and my fellow bereaved out there, but I simply go out and I hit the business community in the wallet with these numbers. Because you know as well as I, if there's no return on investment, they might not pick up on something, compassion aside.
1: Well, I love that the compassion is also economically good. We're really short on time. So sure. the last thing I want to ask you uh-huh. is what important lesson do you want our listeners to
0: take away from hearing this podcast with you? And the third thing I do is go out and I, I do what's called the Ashes to Inspiration Motivational Tour. where yes. I get together with those that have been through personal crisis like you and I have that feel like the bottom has dropped out or that they've been through the fire before. And I let them know that there is a life of peace and purpose out there. And I use you and I use me as examples of that, where we've transitioned now into something that was so much better than what we are before and that we're living a life of peace and purpose and inspiration and motivation. We're helping people and they don't have to help other people. They just have to realize that once again, they can live a life of peace and purpose. They just have to become aware of who they are. Most of us feel like we've lost who we are and we lost our identity. I went through that. Inside of you is spirit. Be inspired by healing, moving forward in your grief, because inspired is nothing more than in spirit. And when you're in spirit, there is nothing that the universe won't put in front of you to help you move forward in your healing.
1: Ron Glen Kelly, thank you so much for being on our program.
0: Oh, you are so welcome. I really, really am honored to be here.
1: Thank you and that concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Michael. I want to thank Ron Glenn Kelly for sharing his experience and wisdom with us. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast. I'll talk with you soon and until then please remember moving forward is not moving away. Thank you.
2: Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories.